Welcome to the PhD Talk podcast. I'm Eva Lanza, a professor in civil engineering and blogger on the side. And I am Sarah Cameron, PhD student and work in organizational psychology. In this podcast, we talk about PhD research and interview current PhD candidates, as well as those who work closely with them. We hope you'll stick around. Hello and welcome to this week's episode of the BG Talk podcast. This is episode 95, in which we'll be interviewing Charles Grimm. He is an assistant professor of English at the Georgia Highlands College and doing a PhD at Georgia State University. He is as well married and father of two young children. So with that very brief introduction, Charles, can you describe a bit your background and career path to us? Uh, my background is a little strange. Um, I went to a really small private Christian school growing up. Um, I had a graduating class of eight, and so it was very small. Uh, but it was a good thing. We I was able to learn a lot about how to how to learn. Basically, a lot of my teachers were not preeminent experts. Um, so me and one of the other uh, guys there, Chris Matthews, we met every day before school compared notes on every homework assignment. We would argue with each other until we could convince the other person who was right and who was wrong. Um, and that just instilled in me a love of learning. And so when I went to undergraduate, I actually entered as a biology major and hated biology. And the only class I enjoyed was literature. Um, I was in a great books honors English class. And so I had to tell my nuclear physicist father that I was switching from biology to English after my first year, but he, he took it well. So. Uh, and after um, the four years at Faulkner, I didn't really know exactly what I wanted to do, um, but I heard that there was a chance to teach English overseas. And so I went uh, with a nonprofit organization to China. Initially, was only going to be there one year, ended up staying for four years, and um, taught at uh, several different colleges and universities in uh, Nanchang, in Jiangxi province, and Hanyang in Hunan province. And um, that's where my wife and I met. Uh, that was in 2008, and then we got married in 2009, came back to America at the depth of the recession. I was stuck in a call center job for three years, very much underemployed with my background, and um, I realized after that third year, I'm never going to have just a, no one's going to reach out and ask me to join their graduate program. I just have to get up and do it, so I applied to the local college there in Huntsville, Alabama. And, studied British Renaissance literature, um, graduated at the same time my wife was transferred to Atlanta uh, with her career. And so that limited me to two colleges I could apply to for my PhD. Um, thankfully, I did get a funded position at Georgia State. Uh, promised my wife I would only be there for three years because she was tired of the whole graduate teaching assistant thing and uh, being the, the only breadwinner at that point. Uh, so I rushed through my coursework, rushed through my comprehensive exams, and then I just despaired in that last year, changed my dissertation topic to try to be more pro be more marketable outside of academia, and then ended up getting the position at Georgia Highlands on a tenure track full-time position at a community college. And so I had to take a year off of my graduate uh, program because it's part of the same university system. And after that year, I was able to use tuition assistance and actually have benefits and um, actual pay uh, benefits, things like that, while finishing up my my dissertation, which I just sent to committee on Friday. Congratulations! So I'm hopefully, almost done. Yeah, thank you. <laughs> 
Um, well, it sounds like quite the ride. And yeah, congratulations on submitting your dissertation. That's a huge accomplishment. I'm wondering if you could tell us a little bit more about what your research focus was and what your topic was. Um, so for the dissertation, uh, I, in my comprehensive exams, I was looking into literacy narratives because I hated them. And no one could ever explain to me why a literacy narrative was just always there in first year composition. And um, I had the good fortune of working with Michael Harker, who run, is one of the two people who runs the digital archive of literacy narratives, along with Ben McCorkle at Ohio State. Uh, really enjoyed that research, but no one outside of academia has ever heard of a literacy narrative. And so when I started to think, if I need a professional career, I don't want to walk into an interview looking overqualified, having not done anything that they can actually understand. Um, so I was doing a lot of ghostwriting on the side at the time just to pick up freelance work, things like that to make ends meet. And so I decided to start writing about ghostwriting because um, when I started to look for any sources and rhetoric composition about ghostwriting, they were few and far between. Uh, thankfully, Deb Brandt's uh, book, The Rise of Writing, where she argues that writing has kind of replaced reading as the key issue of literacy in America, uh, had been published about a couple of years before. And then um, Knapp and Holbert had just published a book called The Ethics of Ghostwriting. And I had no clue who they were. I just found the book in our library. And I saw on the back panel that he was actually had been at Georgia State at one point. So I emailed him a couple of times and asked some questions. And uh, spent that year writing my uh, prospectus, ultimately looking at um, corporate blogs and asking because a lot of what I was reading, people just assume readers know that everything is ghostwritten. But nobody is pointing to any study that's actually measured that. There's just this assumption from people who engage in ghostwriting that, of course, the reader knows this is ghostwritten. Um, so I was designing a survey of just general blog readers, um, kind of had three tracks. Um, they were um, assigned equally into them. One of them, they just read the blog post. It had um, the vice president of sales engineering's name on it. They answered some questions about credibility. Um, the second one had the v, VPSC and uh, a fictional name for me uh, that I use with my students as a joke, um, credited as the um, content writer alongside the VPSC um, and asked the same questions about credibility um, for that one. And in the third track, they read it initially by just the vice president of sales engineering answered the same questions as the first group. But when they were done, it popped up another screen that said, actually, this was written by someone else and it was just attributed to this person and then some follow-up questions about credibility based on the new information um, it was really fun to, to design it um, it took a lot of phone calls with qualtrics to try to figure out how to get it to work it actually was broken the first um, couple of tries um, i had a problem in the logic and had to spend several hours on the phone with qualtrics people but they were great um, they helped me get it set up sadly i only had about 12 people actually persist and finish um, I was hoping for at least 30, which I thought was pretty low. Um, I was amplifying it on my social media. My wife is in marketing, so she was pushing it in some of the marketing groups that she belongs to. Uh, so I ended up having to use the data just kind of as a, the open-ended questions became part of my qualitative data, in addition to interviews I did with ghostwriters that I knew personally. Uh, most of them were content writers or technical writers or um, people in PR, marketing, things like that. And then I just 
on the off chance, found a, uh, a woman named Claudia Suzanne who had written a book a while ago, a textbook on ghostwriting. Um, she had recalled all the copies of it, but one of them was still out there at a library. Uh, I think it was in one of the Dakotas or somewhere. And my little community college librarians are just absolutely amazing. And they had it to me within two days. And so I was able to read her book and reached out to her on LinkedIn. It was pretty easy to find her. And just said, you know, I'm writing this dissertation. I would love to interview you if you don't mind. And she obliged. So uh, she was the fifth interviewee. Uh, once I got the job teaching, I kind of moved. There's one chapter that's specifically about corporate writing. And then one chapter that's more uh, kind of comparing the plight of the ghostwriter with the plight of the first-year composition student. In terms of neither of them have agency. Neither of them are really authors. They're kept from all the material circumstances that would allow them to enjoy being authors uh, and then try to think through uh, what are some things that we might do, especially decentering the single author paper um, to help students understand the value of their writing once they leave the classroom. And I'm hoping that between the two chapters, um, the case is being made that we really devalue writing as writing studies people. Um, we don't argue loudly enough for it's called for how much it brings to other people, especially when we live in an ideas industry. Uh, the only way that America, which no longer really produces objects, can make money is by producing ideas, and those all get communicated through speech and writing. And we've done a pretty bad job of explaining that we are the reason you can do that. And so I'm kind of hoping that the larger argument of this and the longer argument of this uh, will be one to show value in English and writing studies. As a follow-up curiosity question, uh, with regard to the, the questionnaire that you did, what what did you find with regard to credibility, depending on the person that the the writing gets that the, the, the writing gets attributed to, or that the byline says that uh, it's credited to the person? Yeah. So with the it was ten or twelve people who actually persisted through. Um, it was broken the first time. Um, and so I think the first six people were going just through options one and two, and it wasn't until much later they got to option three where it was shown that it was ghostwritten. Uh, so only, I think, two people actually went all the way through that part. Um, one of them said it had no real impact. One of them said it had a minor impact. Um, but I think because it was being distributed on my wife's marketing channels, um, a lot of the people in their qualitative responses indicated a familiarity with ghostwriting and said that one of them specifically said, this is best practice. And so that answer actually in my third chapter really helped me to enter into who sets best practices for ghostwriting. Because um, there are some governing agencies over communications and PR and marketing, things like that. But I couldn't find anywhere that says anything about ghostwriting specifically. All of them say to avoid deception. And then they just say that ghostwriting is not deceptive. And so in their constructed world, it all works, but not many people challenge it. Uh, there was a man, Ernest Borman, who challenged it a lot in the 60s um, in some communications journals that um, I, I feel like I, I wish I could have met him because the way he talks about it is so similar to how I feel about it. Um, but yeah, that was there was no, st no significant findings on that. So I'm hoping other people will pick up that survey and distribute it and hopefully can build up a body of knowledge around mm -hmm. that. Yeah, it would be interesting as well to see um, what the results would be if it's not people from marketing that fill it out, but say the engineers or the, the potential customers of the of, of the company that has this uh, information on, on the website. 
Uh, to change topics here a bit, you teach while also doing your PhD. So can you tell us a bit about how you combine these two tasks that you have and some of the insights that you got from teaching at community college that maybe other PhD candidates may not have? So for, for managing, um, I'll be honest, the first couple of years I wasn't managing very well. Uh, I took a year off on purpose. Um, so I teach a 5-5 five, five load, so five courses in the fall, five courses in the spring. That's the basic contract, and you can – some people do overages, but thankfully I, I'm not in a position where I have to do that. So I can dedicate summers to family and theoretically to dissertation, although it just didn't happen that way a couple of summers due to uh, a number of factors. But um, So it really took a while. My, I purposefully chose a director who was fairly young, who has a husband and children, and who understood kind of where I was coming from. And so um, I, I really am glad for the the committee that I formed. I think all three of them are very kind people. They're very understanding and patient people. They were willing to work with me on this longer um, timeline. And so for the first year when I was off, I was actually working on the IRB. Um, so getting all the approvals, doing all of that while I was uh, not actively researching. And then I just started to do all of the interviews and the surveys, and that was in the fall, like late fall, early spring of 2020. So late fall of 19, early spring of 20. And then COVID hit, and um, that was one of the many things I couldn't have accounted for. Uh, we went to fully on or fully remote for. I was able to do it for one year. Um, not everyone in my department was. With a community college, there was a larger outcry for in-person classes. Um, I won't debate that right now. That's just what was handed down from above. Uh, and so it really, it took a while to get back into my into my research to start actually writing. Uh, and really, it took, uh, there were a couple of us at Georgia Highlands who formed a writing club. And so it was three people who were all later into our PhDs than we wanted to tell anyone about. Uh, one of them, I think, is on the last leg of appeal of extending the plan of study. So we were all pretty motivated. Uh, and so during the summer, we met, uh, I guess it still are, every day we have a calendar commitment for two hours from 1230 to 2.30. Whoever can join jumps on a Zoom and just kind of support each other by being there and texting each other, holding each other accountable. Um, so that writing group was really incredibly useful. Um, my wife wants me to be done. And so um, the closer I got to being done, I think the more excited she was to see that it was happening. And so it was easier to, to get things done. Uh, we also had a second child during that time. He was born right before COVID. Uh, and so, yeah, lots of things around around that kind of kept it from going for a while. But in this last year, I just realized it needs to be done. Um, there was a, a potential chance for um, moving up in my department that I could have applied for, but I felt like it was going to be kind of in the way of my dissertation. And so I decided not to do that with the knowledge that once I have my PhD, I'll be in a better position to apply for other uh, positions to move up later when they make themselves available. Um, there was another part of your question that I was excited about. Yes. Um, right, community college. Yes. Yeah. Mm -hmm. um, the specific insights of community college. Mm -hmm. um, so 
like I, I've taught at just a really eclectic number of schools. And so teaching in China, um, I specifically looked for and found a company that sent teachers to poor areas. Like I didn't want to be in Beijing. I didn't want to be in Shanghai. I didn't want to be in one of the large cities. I wanted to be in what I refer to as real China. Um, and so um, like the, there was a, a moment where some of my students were worried that they would not be able to afford rice because there was a 0.001 cent increase uh, per gram on the price of rice in the cafeteria. So I mean, I'm talking, they were poor students. Uh, so it was good to be there because they had gotten into college. They were excited about being there. They were excited about in, you know, improving their lives and their families' lives. And something about that was just contagious. Like it was high stakes. I mean, they, the students were pretty stressed out, but they also knew where they were and the opportunities that they had. And that was really amazing. Uh, when I taught in Huntsville, I was teaching at an engineering school. So most people don't equate anything in Alabama with engineering, but uh, Werner von Braun did establish his rocket program in Huntsville, Alabama when he defected. Uh, we won't say from where. Uh, <laughs> so um, it is largely an engineering school. Um, we have the defense industry is right there as well. There's a large military uh, arsenal as well. And so it was mostly engineering students there. And it, this that's actually where I learned to stop using rubrics because I got tired of arguing with students over why this box and not this box. Um, so they just wanted a mechanical explanation of all the things that were wrong. And I got tired of that argument. So I went to holistic grading um, as a result of that. Then I taught at Georgia State as a graduate teaching assistant, which is an urban campus. I was driving around looking for the gate of the school because I had never been anywhere but a land-grant university and didn't realize it was just random buildings in downtown Atlanta. Um, so that uh, had a very large number of international students, uh, again, a lot of students who were first generation. And so they knew exactly what it meant for them to be there. They were uh, really great students, had a lot of interesting opportunities there at Georgia State. Then going to Highlands, which is out um, initially in Floyd County. Uh, I teach on the Cartersville campus in Bartow County. It's up Interstate 75 from Atlanta. Uh, my students are very rural, and the majority of them are first-generation students. Uh, we have a lot of dual enrollment students, which is new for me. Uh, that Normally, up to half of my classroom can be dual enrollment high school students. Um, that was... Looks like a new a new thing for me. Um, I'd had a lot of non-traditional students at Georgia State and at UAH, uh, but had not had dual enrollment before. So um, I haven't had any problem with it. They're they're great students. They are for the most part able to adapt uh, to my style of teaching. Um, but in terms of talking to Dr. Harker about literacy, so I, I still when I go to conferences, if he's there with the digital archive, I'll volunteer uh, to help take people's narratives, things like that. Um, and the last time we were able to see each other, I think it was in Pittsburgh before everything went virtual. Um, and he mentioned something about the fact that, you know, he's at a research institution. He has a great position. He teaches some really great classes. I benefited from those. They said, you know, you're the ones that's actually doing the work of literacy with first year students because of where you are at this community college. And that, I mean, hearing that encouragement from him, as opposed to the more traditional looking down on community colleges that happens, uh, especially at our ones. Uh, that was really useful for me to think about that and to think how does literacy as content for first year writing help my students, um, especially if they're not from a professional background, 
helping them figure out how to learn languages, how to speak into different systems of power, things like that. Um, I think a lot of that goes beyond just learning how to write an essay, uh, but we still get to talk about research, get to talk about all those things as well. And so it's it's difficult teaching a 5-5. Um, we have basic writing as well, uh, which is a co-curricular support model that's being revised right now. We're all kind of trying to figure out how can we best serve this group of students that come in by some accounts underprepared for what they're meeting. And obviously, I'm sure you're both familiar, it's not always the case that they're underprepared, but uh, when it is, it really is a challenge. And so uh, that was a, a major shift for me that I think teaching in China kind of helped because again, there I was teaching English as a foreign language and students had varying levels of English showing up. Uh, but the strict focus on writing and trying to help students break out of the these are the rules mindsets and think a lot more about what does my reader need. Um, that has been really profitable for me and for the students who have given me feedback on that. Well, I have another maybe two or three parter for you. Um, okay. <laughs> so you mentioned briefly that you have two children, I believe. And I'm just wondering if you could tell our listeners a little bit more about uh, when in your PhD trajectory your kids were born and uh, how that experience was for you um, and what sort of supports your institution either provided or didn't provide um, in that process. Okay. Um, so when my wife and I got married, we were both very anti-having kids. Like, neither of us wanted kids. We were just going to be a happy professional couple, travel the world, do all those things. Um, after a few years of being around good parents who have children who are enjoyable to be around, we were like, you know, maybe it's not that bad. Um, and so we decided, uh, basically as I was finishing my master's, we were trying for our first. And she was born um, the May, so in May, I started my program in August. She was born that May, right when we were moving to the Atlanta area. Um, so we, <laughs> we moved here in January we lived in a one-bedroom apartment with two dogs. My wife was six months pregnant, working full-time. I had no job and was applying to programs. And we had three months on that lease to find a house. And so a lot of my day was spent applying to jobs and looking for houses. And um, thankfully, my wife's employer had exceptionally good insurance at the time. Uh, we got all said and done, inpatient and everything. There was a $5 copay one five dollar copay and that was it for the entire pregnancy which was pretty nice um but um it was a lot different when i realized like it was easy to be a graduate teaching assistant when it was just me and my wife like when you're dual income with no kids or you, know, you drop down to single income effectively as a graduate teaching assistant um it's not it wasn't a huge impact but then realizing that we have because i'm doing this we have daycare costs we had no clue how frequently children got sick. We had no clue how frequently our, in, we went to, um, took our daughter to a lady who lives in our neighborhood um, to do her in-home daycare, had no clue how frequently she would get sick. Um, and so I had told Nancy, like, ultimately between the two of our jobs, mine is less important. Uh, we can't exist on mine, we can on yours. So when there's a sickness, I would rearrange my schedule as best as I could. Um, we belong to an active church here and had met some other couples who were willing to kind of fill in those gaps when we needed them. And so I'm always thankful for 
uh, the McGee's for doing that. They watched Audrey multiple times when she couldn't go somewhere else. Uh, institutionally, though, I mean, there wasn't really anything for, for fathers. Uh, like at Georgia State, they had a nursing room. And like, I remember the one of the people who gave a tour was bragging on this, and I already knew that was Georgia State law because um, my wife had to get her employer to set apart a room that was not a bathroom, that was specifically for pumping, has to have a refrigerator. Thankfully, Georgia State law uh, provided that much. Um, but most of my professors were pretty understanding. If I had to miss for a sick child or had to be late for that, uh, my students were pretty understanding about it as well when it came up. But then having the second one, <laughs> that was hard. Um, and so there was one guy in my program um, at Georgia State who he and I were just really good friends. Uh, we have very similar backgrounds, very similar beliefs. And uh, he and I both took a really long time. He just recently stepped away um, from the program. And uh, his wife and my wife were having very similar conversations with us throughout of when does this pay off? When does it end? Do you really want this? Uh, and it, it, would, it would come across kind of harsh sometimes, but I knew that the fact that she was talking to me was really what mattered. Because uh, when you stop talking about it and just let it turn into this resentment, that's where really dangerous lives start kind of leading apart from each other. Um, so I do remember there was one night in my third year where I was sitting and talking to my wife, and it just dawned on me that... Um, what I had perceived as me trying to chase my dreams for her really looked a lot more like selfishness that I expected everything to stop for me to be able to do what I wanted to do and um, had not considered the toll it was taking on my wife emotionally and mentally and physically. And so um, getting the job at Highlands was a huge deal for that because uh, my wife is very career oriented, but when she was the only breadwinner, she couldn't really take chances to pursue other options. And so there were some jobs that she had to decline or offers she had to decline because she didn't have the flexibility to leave the employer she had at that time. So um, that was that was hard, um, but it was, it was what we needed. So we had a lot of those long, awkward conversations, but we're still together 13 years into it. And uh, she's told me there are no more degrees after this one. <laughs> Fair. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I won't want one for another few years anyway. So. <laughs> we have some questions that we ask all our interviewees. And uh, the first one is, what is your best advice for PhD students? I, I even read this question. I'm still trying to think what the best answer would be here. Um, I mean, really, I think be realistic about the funding. There's, there's something in academia that doesn't like to talk about money and doesn't like to talk about exploitation. Even though you'll meet a lot of people who do a lot of Marxist readings of textbooks, uh, when you start to real, have those discussions about you are actively exploiting me as a human for my labor as a graduate teaching assistant, all of a sudden it becomes a lot less comfortable for them. Um, if there's a position available to you where you can work at one college and have that college fund your PhD while you have actual salary and benefits, especially retirement, um, then I would say that's the best way forward. And I, I regret that American universities don't have this set up as the norm. Um, 
because it is an exploitative practice to say we're going to pay you a meager amount uh, and I don't know if you guys, I don't know if you remember a few years ago, it even became an issue where they were going to start taxing our stipends or not our stipends, our, our um, PhD or tuition waivers. And so that was going to start being treated as taxable income at one point. Thankfully, that didn't become a thing. But uh, any way that they can be exploited, you probably will be. And so when you hear people say, oh, just take all five years or however many years you have of funding, be aware of the fact that that's an unequal relationship asking you to stay and do unpaid work for a longer period of time. If you can accelerate, accelerate at a, at a pace that's healthy for you. Um, that would be my basic advice. I think I did not have a clear picture of how hard things would be when I started, even though I had to create a spreadsheet for my wife to show her that we wouldn't just, you know, go into utter financial ruin. That spreadsheet was way off. I um, didn't realize that like we didn't get paid until the end of September. We started at the beginning of August and the first um, stipend paycheck was almost completely wiped out by student fees. So we effectively did not get paid until the end of October. And yeah, um, that was not explained to anyone coming into it. That was not accounted for by the institution to do something else um, to make that easier for the students. I, I know it's an imperfect system, but it seems to be an, an imperfect system that not enough people are being critical of. So that would be my main advice. No, I think that's that's great advice. And especially something we talk about a lot on this podcast is how different the sort of economic implications of doing a PhD can be depending on the country and the system that you're operating in. So I think it's good that uh, you raise that because I think certainly for Ava and I, who are both, well, I'm doing my PhD in Belgium and Ava did hers in the Netherlands. We're in a very, very privileged position um, relative to, to others around the world. So I'm quite happy you raised that point. Um, jumping to the next question, um, I'm wondering how you set boundaries to your work. It was a personal choice of mine to do it this way. It's what I needed and my family needed. Um, I, I talk to my wife frequently and I ask her specifically, especially I can tell that she's starting to get irate about time commitments. Does it feel like this is more important than you? And if she says yes, then I pull back. Because what I promised her going into it and what I promised my children as well, I never want this to be more important than you. And when they start to feel that way, then I have to self-correct. And um, sometimes that means kind of pulling back from certain duties and obligations. Um, I, I never do a bad job at things, but I, I do understand when and where I can sacrifice with the level of service and uh, professional development, things like that, that are on my plate. Um, so for me, that was one of the big things. And I mentioned my friend Josh, his was kind of the same, the same thing. And so we were both pretty committed to defy the American odds and actually graduate with our our marriages intact and healthy. Um, and I'm, I'm not trying to say anything bad about people. I, I can see how easily people drift apart in these situations. And it's, it's so lonely being a graduate student, especially when you're in the dissertation writing phase and you're not in coursework with people anymore and you're just kind of in your own silo doing your own thing. Um, and if someone doesn't fully appreciate that, that could be a, a huge source of contention, um, which is why that was always my personal litmus test was 
does, is, does it feel like this is more important than you right now? Um, so we tried to do vacations and things like that. Well, my wife works from home. And so on the days I'm not teaching, we'll go out and grab lunch, things like that, just to make sure those opportunities are still there. I think that's, that as well has great nuggets of advice for our listeners in it. Um, with that, uh, I wanted to, to uh, switch to the next question, which is related to COVID-19. You already mentioned that your second child was uh, born right before the pandemic. So I, I think your experience of uh, getting through those uh, years of the pandemic is also uh, coincides with uh, with having a newborn in, in the house and then a toddler. But can you tell us a bit how COVID-19 changed your job and your daily tasks? Yeah, so um, being in the state of Georgia, um, it's a very conservative, politically conservative area. Um, there were a lot of people here who did not believe COVID-19 was real and were unwilling to mask and do basic precautions to prevent the spread of COVID. Um, that was difficult in and of itself, uh, just because we did have a newborn. Uh, my wife has um, some health issues as well, and um, we just stayed home. I mean, I was the one that would go out and do the grocery shopping. I would wear a mask every single time. Um, again, having lived in Asia for four years, I got used to seeing it there. Like a lot of Chinese people wear masks just if the smog index is higher than they like it to be, or um, if they have a cold or a flu or anything like that. Uh, the mask comes out and it's, it's a great thing to do to show that you care about the people around you. Um, so the, the emotional toll that that took was really difficult. Uh, my wife is Korean American. And so the anti-Asian sentiment uh, that came along with COVID, especially in conservative circles in America, uh, became incredibly troubling. And so We worried about that with our children as well, because they are mixed race children who are visibly um, part Asian as well. Uh, so we all stayed home as long as we possibly could. Uh, we sent our daughter after a year. Um, she was in pre-K when COVID hit, and then they opened up in-person kindergarten. With me teaching from home, five horses, and my wife working from home, uh, and the two of us trying to juggle the... Uh, the infant, we made it, I mean, it was a tough choice and we, we debated it all summer long, whether she should go in person or stay and do digital, but um, we taught her early to wear a mask. So if we went anywhere, like taking a walk around the neighborhood or anything like that, we would put them, like, we bought cloth masks. We bought really nice patterns that she liked with like cartoon characters and things like that. So she would be interested in them. And she wore her mask consistently for almost two full years. Um, and was often the only person in her class uh, wearing a mask in the first year because, um, well, I don't know exactly why. It's just how it was. And so she did a great job with that. Um, we do wonder if it had some impact on her development and social development, especially because it marked her even more different. Um, but she stayed safe, and that's really what matters. She can we can deal with the rest of it uh, at a later time, as long as she's safe and healthy. Um, teaching wise, I had done a lot of hybrid teaching. Um, I had never done fully online teaching. And 
I thought that the hybrid teaching, the half online, half in person, would have prepared me really well for it. And I found out I was woefully underprepared for going fully online. And um, our college did try to make everything synchronous, and we used Zoom. Um, the university system had a contract with Zoom, so all that was set up uh, fairly quickly. But students dropped out pretty quickly. Um, they would ghost the class. I never required anyone to turn on cameras because I just, that's their home. I have no clue who's in that home with them. I don't want them to feel like I have to monitor them in that way. Um, but it, got, it did get difficult. And I taught a few asynchronous classes as well. And I, I'm teaching, actually, I'm teaching one this semester. And I'm getting better at it. I'm not good at it necessarily yet, but I am getting better. Um, and I did have to teach one asynchronous uh, support class, the basic writing class, and that was not something I ever want to do again. We actually changed the policy as a department that there will be no asynchronous support classes because those students do a lot better with at least a face on a screen uh, for some kind of accountability there. Um, but yeah, it was, it did make me rethink some of my due dates and things along those lines. I was never like a, a point off per day type person. It just wasn't who I was, but trying to balance PhD work with marriage, with husband, with owning a house, all those other things that pile on, um, you had to have something there to kind of protect your time. And I think that's why some people have those time limits. With COVID, I changed it and just said, there's no due date. There's no like, there's basically you can turn anything in until the day before grades are due. And the benefit of turning it in when I ask you to, like I admit, they're completely arbitrary due dates. Um, it's all based on my schedule. So the benefit of that is you're going to be getting my feedback in a timely manner. And you can use that feedback on the next assignment and you'll get better as a writer. Your grades will improve because you'll be doing the things I'm looking for in the writing. So I had some students every semester who wait until, you know, after the final exam day and try to submit everything and they, it, it's hit or miss. Uh, some of them can and some of them cannot. And I have to have that conversation with them of you took the risk and that's the that's the outcome that came about. Um, but yeah, it's just this semester, it seems like the in-person classes are a lot happier. Um, and I've, I've heard that from a lot of my colleagues, not just at my institution, but at other institutions as well. We're all still aware that COVID is still here. Uh, we're painfully aware in my house that flu is still here. We just passed it through all of us in the past few weeks. Uh, and uh, we're aware of all of those things, but it's just something about being together in a class and talking about things. And there's a more of a willingness for rapport. I think students value the in-person more now, having gone through so much digital and especially poorly designed digital teaching, where it was basically just, here's some worksheets, turn on your camera, and let me make sure you're not cheating on them. Um, so going from that to a much more engaged, um, having them talk through things and um, do a lot of collaborative learning, do a lot of corporate writing, things like that, I think they're a lot more receptive to it now. And to close off the interview, I'm wondering if you could uh, describe what a typical day in the life looks like for you. Um, so I am the chauffeur. Um, mm -hmm. So a typical day in the life, um, I get my daughter up at 6.30, and she's seven years old. She's able to do most of the important things for herself. 
Uh, I get her ready to her bus stop. Sometimes her brother wakes up around the time we're leaving the house. I tell him to go get in bed with his mommy and help cuddle with her. Uh, and then when I get back, I take him to his preschool. Uh, and from there, I go to Georgia Highlands where I teach. It's about a 40-minute drive from where I live, which sounds like a lot to some people, but I used to have to drive into downtown Atlanta, and that was about a four- to five-hour round-trip commute daily, and so I'm okay with 40 minutes one way. Uh, <laughs> and um, I get to my office normally around 8.30, uh, work in my office or work in the classroom, because I teach in the same classroom all day long, uh, not on, like it's not by design, just happened that way with what was available. Um, so if students are there, I'll try to engage them a little bit if I have time or if they are making it very clear they want to be left alone. I just let them sleep or do whatever they need to do in that time. Um, so I teach, like it's, it's a weird cadence of things. I teach comp two and then comp one and then an eight-week comp two um, that just started in October and so uh, I teach those kind of back to back to back and try to drink as much water as I possibly can uh, and then I go to my office right after that and try to head home around four o'clock get my daughter take her from taekwondo to her swimming class and uh, then after that go and get my son from daycare uh, we figure out we try to keep a menu. That's one of the, the other boundaries things. My wife and I try to plan out every week what's being cooked each day and who's going to cook what. Uh, and so we try to cook at home. There are some days where we dial it in and just pick up fast food on the way. But uh, we make sure we have family time for at least a couple of hours playing games, talking. Just We put him to bed around 8.30, Audrey to bed around 8.45 or 9. That way she has a little bit more like, yeah, you're the older sister. You can get a few more minutes of us. Um, and we, this is probably very teacherly of us, but um, we ask her reflection questions every night. Um, we ask her, what was your favorite thing you did today? What was your least favorite thing you did today? What was your yummiest food? What did you do to be a good friend? What are you excited about for tomorrow? And then the most important questions we ask are, do mommy and daddy love you? Will mommy and daddy always love you? Is there anything you can do to make mommy and daddy stop loving you? And that's how we went to end every night with our kids to make sure they can tell us what they liked and tell us what they didn't like because we care about both and we want it to be a safe space for them. But the last thing we want them to hear, other than being yelled at when they get out of bed when they're not supposed to, uh, is that they are loved. So um, that's, that's pretty much it. Then we sometimes we both go back to our desks and keep working. Sometimes we sit down and watch things. We just finished Love is Blind. I'll admit uh, it was it was interesting, is all I can say. It was captivating TV on Netflix, but uh, yeah, so that's that's a day in the life. It's very exciting and glamorous, I know. So with that, I would like to to thank you, Charles, for joining us on the podcast today, and I'd like to as well thank all our listeners for listening to today's episode, and we'll be back next week with more in PhD life and research mechanics.